love for you this morning to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of 2 Peter. It's toward the back. And listen, we've never been able to do this before in our entire uh, three and a half, almost four-year history as Fondren Church. But we want to offer you a free study Bible if you don't have one. Now, many of you do have one, okay? So don't just steal a Bible. That would be eternal damnation in hell. But we would like to offer that to you. And if you're maybe a little intimidated or not sure how to turn, I want you to take a black hard copy Bible that's located right in front of you. And through the generosity of one man in our church, we're able to make this offer. But uh, there's ESV study Bibles all around the room today. If you could grab a black study Bible, if you don't have one, if you're not going to access it on your mobile device, and it's right there in front of you. And listen, turn to page 1019. And yeah, there we go. Laura, don't act so stunned and surprised that I'm organized. Page 1019. This is kind of random, but when, uh, when I was a single guy batching it with some roommates, uh, we would have guys that would just wake up late. Uh, you know the old saying, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who wake up and say, good morning, Lord, and those who wake up and say, good Lord, it's morning. And I had some of those good Lord, it's morning roommates, and I would sing a hymn, a knockoff of a hymn. I would sing, up from the grave he arose with purple painted toes. Just mocking my roommate who woke up late. And today during worship, I looked at my wife, which I like to do, and I noticed she has purple painted toes. You threw me off there, babe. Ray, you confirm that? Can't see. There we go. Purple painted toes right here at Vonner Church. Second Peter chapter 3. And a thanks to the generosity of one of our own, uh, we, we want to be able to, uh, as we move in the weeks ahead, to offer these study Bibles for your usage so that you can turn and look with us. It says in Acts 17, 11, that these were more noble, talking about the Bereans, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And we want to cultivate that in our church. There's nothing like quite having a Bible open in front of you, so I would encourage you to do that. Am I right about the page number 1019? That's 2 Peter 3. We'll get there in just a minute. Probably the most common method of Jesus' teaching was the following. Uh, real simple. Someone would ask him a question, and he would respond to that question. Now, I'm no Jesus, but we're taking that approach over the next six weeks. Uh, your questions uh, came in so fast and furious and so thoughtful that we've decided to take uh, today and the next five weeks, this six-week stretch, to answer some hard questions. We've tabulated, and we're going to go like an airplane. We're going to uh, ascend from lowest to highest, and in six weeks we'll answer uh, I'll try to answer the hardest, most popular question that uh, you've sent me. And I want to thank you so much for that. I made one mention, visited a couple of small groups, uh, personally invited some of you, and I've been inundated. I want to thank you for that. Uh, number six, the sixth most popular question as we've tabulated them is the following. Ready? Are we living in the end times? Are, are we living in the end times? To be honest... Your, your, as your questions came in, there were a lot of questions that sort of paralleled this, but I've kind of encapsulated it with this very question. Now, back in October 4th, I believe it was, 2014, Ole Miss beat Alabama and State beat Auburn. It catapulted us to top five in the nation and to cover of Sports Illustrated. And we looked at each other and said, well, Jimmy Earl, these are the end of times. <laughs> and, of course, after the season played out and the bowl season, we kind of wished they were the end of times, right? 
But if you look at the world around you and you see the rise of ISIS, the spread of the Ebola virus, the murder and martyr of Christians, you can't help but wonder if we're not living in the end times. Bored one night about a year ago, I tuned into a, a television movie that had been at the theaters a, a couple of years prior. It was a movie called 2012. Any of you see this with John Kuzek and Woody Harrelson and some others were in it? But it, it was a movie just of just catamalistic kind of proportion like apocalyptic kind of stuff just a c catastrophe it, it involved earthquakes and tsunamis and cities crumbled and continents just sank uh, billions lost their lives it was a real warm pick-me-up family friendly film you just invite the kids into the room Hollywood produces movies like this and we eat them up I imagine several years from now if Christ hasn't come that Will Smith's son will be in a movie about the end of the world, right? We look around at our world, we see what Hollywood is producing, but the more important question, guys, is what does the Bible say? What does the Bible indicate? Okay, notice both questions are really important, and you'll be less frustrated if you, if you hear both. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible indicate? Even Jesus' own disciples came to him, asking him about the end of the of time. Let me drop some statistics on you, if you will. There are 216 chapters in the New Testament. Over 300 references are to the end times. There are 27 books in the New Testament. 23 of the 27 books make mention of the end times, the return of Christ, the second coming. One in every 30 verses say something about it. Honestly, guys, I wanted to dismiss this question and just tackle five. But those statistics, they speak loud, don't they? And before we get too heavy, because we're thinking end of the world, I don't want to lose you, let me share a, a brief story that you may appreciate. Two preachers uh, pastored churches right across the street, literally right across the street from one another in a beautiful mountain community. And they put up signs. One of them uh, put up a sign that said, the end is near. The other one put up a sign that said, turn before it's too late. Here comes a convertible with the top off, the windows down, the music blaring. Young people were in the car, and they were laughing and making fun of the religious weirdos. Those preachers those, with those churches, those church signs. And the pastors, they heard screams, a screech, and a sudden splash. And the, one preacher looked at the other and said, maybe we should have just put a sign out that said, bridge out ahead. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 24... Those of you who want to learn more later, it's one of the most extensive sections of Jesus' teaching on the new, on the end times. Granted, some of it is figurative. It, 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 you have to really enter into it to ascertain its meaning, its potential meaning. But in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, here's something that Jesus said. He sat at the Mount of Olives, which is above Jerusalem. This is somewhere where Jesus would often frequent uh, to pray. Remember the prayer, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, when he had compassion on the people? It was here at the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. What does that mean? That means they like, yeah, she's answering questions on the front row. That's awesome. What, what does that mean they came to him privately? They, that probably meant they were looking for some insider information, right? And don't you know religious people are like that? And people are selling books today. Some of you are buying them because what? They seem to have insider information. The disciples came to Jesus looking for some insider information. Tell us when these things will be. 
and what will be the sign of your coming and of those and of the, of the close of the age now here we go let me be up front are we living in the end times the most honest answer I can give you is I don't know maybe so could be but this morning I want to spend at least a few minutes telling you that I believe there are some indicators that it could be the end times or close to the end times and as we look at these I want to say this as a little caveat the scriptures as I understand them and as I've studied it thoughtfully over the years and particularly this week as the scriptures teaches in my understanding all the signs have been fulfilled God could return he he could return now as a caveat let me say this every generation since the generation of Jesus has thought the same thing what makes us different what makes our generation different I want to give you three indicators signs that have been fulfilled okay listen to me we're going biblical that's where we're starting we're taking the Bible and we're looking at the world in which we live you get that starting from Scripture and we're looking at our world the first sign is this it's the regathering of the nation of the Jewish people to the land of Israel the regathering of the Jewish people to the land of Israel consider if you will Jeremiah chapter 16 therefore behold the days are coming declares the Lord when it shall no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt but as the Lord lives who brought the people of Israel out of the north country and out of the countries where he had driven them for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers what does that mean what what is he saying here consider Isaiah chapter 11 in verse 12 and we'll take them both together Isaiah 11 12 He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, the four corners of the earth is a popular expression, isn't it? You've probably used it in some of your conversations, some of your more eloquent conversations. But the four corners, it's somewhat figurative, but it has a real physical aspect to it, I I believe. Now, here's what I want you to know. In 1900, there were 40,000 Jewish people in the Palestinian region by the end of World War II and after the Holocaust there were approximately 500,000 about a half a million today 6.3 million Jewish people are back in their land where they come from do you know some of you know this they've, they've come from Europe they've come from Ethiopia they've come from other African nations they've come from America and if you follow the events of just this year just in late 2014 and early part of 2015 because of the events in Paris a lot of the Jewish people have uh, had made an exodus from France back to the homeland interesting huh from 40,000 to half a million to 6.3 million and they've come where from the four corners of the earth the regathering of God's people in the Israeli homeland second thought second indicators the reclamation I want you to use that word today at lunch use it on somebody the reclamation of the land 
of Israel. Would love for you to circle that word land if you're taking notes because there's some literalism to this. Consider Ezekiel 36, 35. And they will say this land was desolate. It has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. In the Jewish land, there was a time where there were in the 19, uh, let's take the year 1900, there were approximately 17,000 trees. And you're thinking, okay, I'm looking for a new church. How do you know there are 17,000 trees in that land in 1900? Well, it was, the, the land was under Turkish control for a long time, a, a, a high Muslim population, and the Turks taxed people based on the number of trees. And the people figured out a simple tax reduction plan. They would cut down their trees. Today in that land, there are millions upon millions, uh, like the sand of the seashore, just too innumerable. There's a valley outside this land called the Valley, listen up, have you heard about this? Called the Valley of Armageddon. The Bible refers to this as a future battle site. And just a century ago, in the Valley of Armageddon, it was basically a, a, just a, a malaria-infested marshland just a hundred years ago. Today, it's become, dramatically, it's become one of the richest food-producing places, pieces of real estate in the entire world. The reclamation of the land. A third thing that I want to submit to you is the rebirth of Israel as a nation in 1948. Consider Ezekiel 37, 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. From here, there becomes a promise from God that these dry bones will be resurrected. They'll be resurrected. What, what is God doing here with his people? In May, on May 14th, 1948, a small band of Jewish people declared themselves a nation again. It's, it's a date that I would encourage you to look up if you want to do further research. But they became a nation again. And God has added to their number. Now, if you know some of the panoramic of the history of the nation of Israel, you know that when they abandoned God, when they said, uh, forget you, Jehovah, they were taken captive by a number of people, the Assyrians, um, the Babylonians, the Persians. Later, the per they found favor with the Persians. But when the, the Greeks and the Romans appeared on the scene and they were uh, taken in, the Romans in the year A.D. 70 laid Jerusalem uh, to ruins and that was known as really the end of the Jewish people but today their number is growing their nation has been reformed the signs that God has given of Christ's return have been fulfilled are we living in the end times I don't know could be Maybe. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. And let's look at what Peter said in verse 3. We're going to look at several of these passages. If you have your 
Bible open, that'd be great. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. What are, what are the scoffers doing? They will come with what? With scoffing. Long before the kids said, haters going to hate, Peter said, scoffers going to scoff. <laughs> scoffers are coming along, and they got some scoffing. Because that's what scoffers do, right? They scoff. You may want to say that at lunch. Hey, take your scoffing away from me. But scoffers going to scoff, and that's what Peter is saying. What, what's he saying? That the, the people are going to get to a place where they're going to dismiss God. They're, they're going to live life on their own. One uh, passage of the Bible says it like this. The, they have the God of their appetite. They're just going to do what they want to do. And like those people in the convertible passing those two churches in the mountainside community, mocking their signs, those people say the very thing. Uh, Christ didn't return. There's no end of the world. It, it, it doesn't matter. Your God even is not real. There's a scoffing that takes place. Look at uh, chapter 3 of Second Peter and verse 4 and following. They will say, these are the scoffers, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Some good science there, by the way. And that by means of these, the world that, men, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. You know that this is depicting Genesis and the Noah story. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Some are reading a lot of global warming into this. Can I just say, I won't say anything. Uh, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. God's timetable is not your timetable. Uh, Isaiah says his ways are higher than your ways, his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His timetable is different from yours. More people have come to faith in Jesus over the last 100 years than all the previous years combined. God has a plan in consummation of the world, and it's a wiser plan than mine. There are some scholars who they take the Bible and they look at it as a, a meta-narrative. Now, I personally think it's wise. It's a great course of study, a great course in preaching, but they take the meta-narrative of four quadrants in chronology, and they'll say there's the creation there's the fall, there's redemption, and there's the consummation. And there is, woven into that meta-narrative, meta an understanding of the days, that there are seven days to God's plan. Then if you take that, if you take a day as a thousand years, then you're looking at 4,000 years from Adam to the time of Jesus. Then you're looking at, that, that's four days. Then you're looking at Jesus to us, that's two days or 2,000 years, that's 6,000 years. And some of you are thinking, cool. Woohoo! We got a thousand more years. But consider the 1,000 year millennium reign of Christ. Now, if those men and women, those scholars, are right in their interpretation, if they are, then that means we got about that much time. Just a little bit of time. Now, Scripture tells us. It tells us that um, God's timing is different. But does that tell us that we're going to know uh, exactly when? 
Some have done an interpretation of understanding, taking that, that year of 1948, their understanding of the scripture there in Ezekiel. Jesus talked a little bit about it when he talked about a fig tree. Some people think in Matthew 24 that the fig tree there is representing Israel that Jesus talks about. And that year, 1948, is really important. In 1948, you know, the Bible tells us in Psalm 90 that the average lifespan is 70 to 80 years. Guess what? The average lifespan is 70 to 80 years. I think for women, it's, it's for men at 75, for women, it's 79 to 80 years. You take the average lifespan, you add that to 1948, and you have the years from 2018 to 2028. That means the end could be near if their interpretation is right. If you're around in 2028 and Jesus hadn't returned again, sometime in 2029, you could say, hey, they were wrong about that, right? They, they, they didn't get that right. There, there, there's the day that is different in God's tabulation. But for us, I think it's really important to see. Now look at verse 10 in 2 Peter chapter 3. If it's in front of you or on the screens, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. It says, I don't know if we can get that up there, but it says what? It says that the Lord's return, it'll be like what? A thief in the night. Now how does a thief come? Does a thief call you? And tell you he's coming tomorrow? Does he call you and ask you to leave out all your valuables, your watches, your jewelry, your cash, your china, your Apple products? Does he tell them to leave your, you know, for his ease and convenience to leave them right there at the door? A thief catches you unaware. And I believe that's the way it will be. So I want to give you, I want you, in 2 Peter chapter 3, I want you to turn back a little bit to 1 Peter. Everybody will be able to do this. You turn back to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I think this is the passage, and the first phrase of 1 Peter 4 and verse 7 is the reason this was tabulated as the sixth most common question that you have. Because you read these first few words and you think, you can't believe this stuff. Let's close the book. Let's take it to the house. Because Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Is that a not enough proof for the doubter? Some of you have been plagued by that. And some of the other corresponding teachings. Even some of what Jesus said in Luke 21 and Matthew 24. Doesn't that make you just want to close the book? If they said the end of all things is at hand, doesn't that mean that... They don't know what they're talking about. And just like someone would mock you in the year 2029, if you believed one of those theories that I presented to you, that these guys, they deserve our mockery as well. I want you to write down Luke chapter 21. I'm not going to tackle it here because I, I don't want you to fall asleep, but write down Luke chapter 21. Write down Acts 1-7, where, by the way, Jesus looks at the disciples right at Pentecost and to Peter in particular and says, you're not going to know when I'm returning, Okay. And, I, and then, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go plug in John Piper, 1 Peter 4-7. John Piper, 1 Peter 4-7. And his third sermon on his list, he's an old guy that's been preaching the Bible a long time, and he's a brilliant man. And he gives a great sermon on the end times on 1 Peter 4-7 to clear that up for you. But I would just say, in a cursory look, 
if Peter's with Jesus and Jesus saying, hey, you're not going to know, it's probably safe to assume that Peter hadn't lost it, right? That Peter's not claiming what you may think he's claiming on the surface. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. God, I pray that for you, for your family, for our church. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Randy Travis, amen. I want to give you four things that are really important. This will let you know a little bit about your pastor if this is your church. But if I'm preaching on the end times, I will share some signs and indicators as I have done. But I want to share with you four things that are really important straight from this passage, okay? The first is this, that I need to think clearly. It's fun to forecast and figure out things. If you want to do that, man, go at it. Have fun. It's fine. Some of you are thinking, well, Green, I want you to break open the book of Revelation. I want some charts and some graphs. But here's what I want to say. Be careful buying books from people who want to scare you with blue moons and computer chips, etc., etc. And if you want to have fun filling out charts and graphs, I might join you in that. I may want to sit in as you're doing that. But I'm going to tell you then one-on-one, and I'll tell everybody now, make sure you when you're filling out your charts and graphs to use a pencil because nobody knows and Matthew 24 36 is Jesus's clearest statement on that but you and I need to think clearly now here's what I want to go today because I think this is really important we may not be living in the end of times but it's the end of your time We may not be living in the last days, but it's your last days. And we need to think with sober judgment about how we're living because we only have so long. I referenced it earlier, but it's Psalm 90 and verse 12, a prayer of Moses who says in the Psalms, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Think clearly. Think soberly. That's what we ought to do we can endlessly debate theories and we can read Dr. David Jeremiah from San Diego and John Hagee from San Antonio and we can debate these things endlessly the first uh, few verses in Revelation says blessed is the man is the person who reads these words I think we ought to think about the end times in seminary it's called eschatology and maybe we'll tackle this at length about what happens Uh, What does the Bible teach more comprehensively? But I want to tell you from 1 Peter chapter 4 that you and I, we need to think clearly. Secondly, we need to love deeply. This life, it really needs to count. We only have so many years and God has a great plan. Right in the margins, if you would, Galatians 5, 6, B. You ever been reading and they do like a something A, something B? Galatians 5, 6, B. It doesn't mean forget that first part. It just means focus. The first part's on circumcision, okay? I'll just say it. But the second part, 
the second part says this. You with me? Yes. From a man. Galatians 5, 6. It says this. The only thing that counts is faith expressed in love. Here's what God put on my heart. I don't want to get weird. I don't want to freak you out. But I feel like God has clarified my calling and my role at Fondren Church for the remainder of whatever days he gives me. That I stand here almost weekly and my job is to teach you how to love. Because the only thing that counts, Galatians 5, 6b, is faith as it expresses itself in love. Now let me tell you something I've seen with my own eyes. And then you tell me. I still want your hard questions. Well, later. We'll, we can follow up with the hard questions. But how do you think we could apply this in our community of Jackson? But I saw a group of people, and I saw a pastor stand up. And he said, on Christmas, I want us to go out. And I want us to buy as many meals for strangers as possible and give a, as big of tips as possible in the name of Jesus. And I know a story of a college student, okay, a college student who got to know someone at a Waffle House, a waitress. He learned that she was a single mom with two teenagers working three jobs. And he went and he took everything from his bank account. He went back to the Waffle House and he ordered a 75-cent cup of hot chocolate. And he left $1,000 in an envelope. And he went outside and he hid in the bushes because he wanted to see her reaction. A little bit of voyeurism, but you know. <laughs> and he saw her throw her hands over her face and just fall down into the booth. She stood back up because he walked in and gave her a big hug. Another family went to where? Waffle House. Makes you want to get a job at Waffle House, doesn't it? <laughs> One on High Street, one on 55 Frontage. <laughs> one family goes in, and they learn about a waiter who's struggling to make it through college. In fact, he's not going to be able to because of debt, because of no family support. And they really believed in this guy. He's pursuing art. We have artists here. It's hard when people don't believe in you, right? A lot of detractors, critics, and naysayers. And this one family was moved by this young man, and they left him a note. And in the note, they included a check, and the note said the following, here's a check that should take care of the next couple of years for you. And there's a key to our car. It's the blue Volvo parked next to the newspaper stand. And that family walked home that day. The only thing that counts is faith as it expresses itself in love. You know it says that God loves a cheerful giver. It does not say God loves a reluctant giver. It doesn't say God loves a guilt-ridden giver. It doesn't say God loves a scary giver. But God loves a cheerful giver. And what does love do? Bob Goff says love does. Love gives, doesn't it? And that's what Peter says here. Let's love one another in that way. Because the end... Is near. What does that mean, the end of all things here? Well, you're going to learn on your own, aren't you? You're going to go, you're going to look at those passages, you're going to look at John Piper's sermon, and you're going to learn. I need to think clearly. I need to love deeply. Two things real quick. I need to use my gifts. 
There's nothing like the church when it's functioning in a healthy way. There's not a week that goes by where I don't pray that this would become less of an event and more of a community where joints and ligaments connect together where it's not sit and soak and listen to bald-headed guy with a goatee talk but it's let me discover what I can do to serve and it, it ought to start in small things and then we give it to God and see what he can do I drive by here I drove by here yesterday and I see my boy Jason Matisse out here and he's got his equipment and his truck and his trailer and all kind of stuff out here and he's he's making the lawns look good and you know how much we pay him nothing because we're cheap at Fondren Church <laughs> but Jason does it because it's one of the ways that he can use his gifting and his heart and he loves our church he believes in what God is doing here, and it's, a, it's his way, one of several ways that Jason Matisse says, I love our church, and I believe in this community, and I believe in us being a light on this hill. What has God given you? One young, man, one young man in our church, I say young, he's not too young, but he's one of our deacons, and uh, not tomorrow night, but the next night, on Tuesday night, on the History Channel. He's going to be on the History Channel talking about an excerpt about the Civil War. His name is Ben Cloyd, he and his wife Katie. And a few years ago, by the way, they're two of the most generous people I know. And a couple of years ago, Fonner Church came around them to help them go to the Ukraine to adopt their baby, Sophia, who has Down syndrome from the Ukraine. You know, Ben and Katie, they don't seem to stop with their sacrificing. They, they're wanting to sell their home in Belhaven and move to where? West Fonner so they can be right near people who have needs and minister to them. You guys have a living room, don't you? You guys have a sectional and a flat screen and furniture in your living room. Just nod so that I know you're not asleep. I do. I, I, I like my living room. It's a place of sanctuary for me. I, I, I tell people to leave me alone. I yell at my kids. and that's, 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 you know, I've got that place, right? Ben and Katie don't have a living room. Well, they have a living room, but they have a contraption and a device to help their daughter with Down syndrome. It's a place that she can play. They make sacrifice after sacrifice, and they want to be right here to make a difference. What are your gifts? What's God calling you to? How can you give? How can we give? If we're going to be a generous church, we need a generous people. Lastly, I'll close with this. I need to receive God's grace. That also is in verse 10 and 11. I just looked at this this morning. I mean, I need to make sure I get my name right here. There's a, an e, E60 report on ESPN. Ben Petrick. Ben Petrick. Plug that into YouTube. Ben Petrick E60. It's 14 minutes long. I watched it and I cried this morning. Ben, he says in his story that I, he said, I left Portland, Oregon, and I was the envy of all the people. And I came back to my hometown, and I was the pity of all people. And Ben Petrick was a catcher for the Colorado Rockies. You can hear Todd Hilton talk about him. A stud catcher and had an amazing rookie year. One day after his rookie year, he noticed a stiffness and rigidity in his left hand. He was coming down with Parkinson's disease. And that was his last baseball to ever play. Today he's trying his best to coach Little League on the sidelines. 
and he's pretty much dependent on his wife to take care of most of his everyday needs. Ben Petrick said this to the ESPN reporter, each day I get a little stronger about being weaker. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, be strong therefore in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When I was a young man, I thought my strength would be in, well, my strength. And now I want every young person to listen to me, especially every young man. My strength is no longer in my strength. My strength is in his grace. And there's just something about this phrase from a former catcher of the Colorado Rockies who's wasting away with Parkinson's disease when he says, each day I get a little stronger about being weaker. God's grace is so important in the lives of our church. It's going to be real important as we tackle a couple of more hard questions in the weeks ahead. Would you pray with me? And as we pray, in a moment we're going to stand and sing and have a time of invitational prayer. But I want to ask you to hearken back to what was said earlier. Hey, we may not be living in the end of times, but you're in the end of your times. This may not be the last days, but these are your last days. Would you think through what Peter says? I'd love for you to make a commitment to go and study and learn. What does he mean in 1 Peter 4, 7? Here's what I think you'll find. What looks like a contradiction, what looks like a misguided type of prediction is anything but. And it has great wisdom and relevance to your life. Father, I pray today that we we would long for a closer relationship. That we would consider the certainty of the end of all things, the end of our lives, the brevity of it, the beauty of it, the potential of it. The only thing that counts is faith as it expresses itself in love. Lord, what do you want from us? What are you, what are you leading us to at Fondren Church? Give us courage to follow hard after you. Motivated by love. Give us great cheer as we, as we give and learn and seek to be like Jesus. In you we pray. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to be down front. Love the opportunity to pray with any of you for anything. These few minutes are reserved. We'd ask that you not leave. I know you're tempted to, but stay. And for some of you, we'd love to pray for you. Don't worry about people around you. Have the courage to come forth. Even that, uh, even a few steps could be a testimony to someone else and a demonstration of God's grace being made available in our lives. You stand and sing and for some of you, you come today.